This episode of Vet School Unleashed is brought to you by AVMA PLIT. Learn more at avmaplit.com. Hey, welcome to another episode of Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM, where we dissect topics and issues relating to life in veterinary school. I'm your host, Seth Williams, and I'm a veterinary student at the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm really excited about today's podcast because we're going to talk about one of the topics that I have really become interested in veterinary medicine, which is nutrition. And I'm super excited to welcome on a soon-to-be board-certified nutritionist, Dr. Catherine Ruggiero. We're going to get into some of the hottest trends and topics in nutrition, some controversial even, uh, and hopefully have a really good conversation and learn a little bit about these different diets and, and things going on in the nutrition world that can help us out in practice and in vet school. So let's just dive right in. Dr. Ruggiero, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Ah, it's going good. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming. It's it's really an honor to have you on. Nutrition is one of the really cool things that I've learned to love in vet school, so I'm glad that you were willing to come on and talk about some cool topics in nutrition and, and some things that we may not be thinking about as we're going out into practice, even throughout vet school, and, and, um, and even as pre-vets, things that we don't really think about all that often. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. So first question for you is, as always, tell us about yourself, where, where you're from, uh, where'd you go to vet school, what are you doing now? Yeah, uh, so I grew up in New York State, kind of all over, but mostly upstate New York. Um, I went to undergrad in, in New York and grad school, and then I went to veterinary school at Mizzou, so our alma mater, yep. your soon-to-be alma mater, <laughs> um, and I did my four years of vet school there, and while I was in vet school, I was very active in VBMA mm-hmm. and really interested in going out into general practice. That was the goal. I was not interested in pursuing an internship or any other training. I just wanted to be a practice owner in general practice. So I was very fortunate and found a fantastic practice as a new grad and went back to New York State. I was um, in a six-doctor practice. I was wow. one of six. Great. Yeah, fantastic mentorship, um, a really great group of veterinary technicians, and it was kind of the perfect practice, mm-hmm. but I was not very happy in general practice. Um, I loved my clients. I had great clients, and I loved talking to them, but I didn't love some of the other stuff, like yep. surgery and <laughs> um, emergency. Right. So I started to think after a year and a half or so that I'm in the perfect practice, and I'm not loving it. So uh, what else could I maybe do that I enjoy doing on a daily basis? And nutrition was a really natural uh, thought for me of what I could maybe specialize in and narrow my focus a little bit. So I applied to the match Mm -hmm. for a residency and nutrition is one of the few where you don't have to have do an internship before. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I had my three years or so in general practice, and that was sufficient to right. qualify for a residency in nutrition. And I matched back at the University of Missouri. Go so figure. Yeah. <laughs> there are, are not many programs in right. nutrition training. So um, Missouri is one. I had I knew the people there from when I was a student, so right. that was uh, it. Was a nice thing to come back to to come back to people that I knew. Uh, so I, I started my residency a year and a half ago, and it's a two year program okay. at most institutions. So I'm got about six months left. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, and uh, then I'll be out in the world as a nutritionist. Cool. So what do you think you'd like to do? What you are a board in nutrition? That is a great question. Um, I uh, am leaning towards industry jobs. Okay. I spent some time in practice, and uh, I 
don't know that I'm married to going back into practice. Right. But uh, if I could focus on nutrition, it would be a very different experience. So I'm, I'm open to a few options, right. but um, working in industry has become really attractive for the opportunities to talk to vet students, to talk to other veterinarians. I right. love talking to referring veterinarians. Mm-hmm. I was in their shoes. I get it. Right. Um, I like talking to them about nutrition and helping to improve their education on nutrition because a lot of veterinarians out there didn't get a lot in vet school. Sure. Um, so I love giving CE and lecturing. And so I think industry would be a really natural uh, way to apply that. Right. Now, are there many nutritionists out in private practice? And I'm, I'm not talking about... Um, in academia at at the vet hospitals? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very limited. (laughs) There are a few that work for some of the bigger specialty hospitals and um, will kind of float between a couple of different hospitals. Uh, So VCA and um, Blue Pearl have have one or two. Um, And then there is one at Red Bank. That's probably the the most well-known clinical nutrition service is at Red Bank with Dr. Martha Klein. And she sees patients as kind of a primary service and also consults with the rest of the hospital. But there are not many. Um, There are a few doing private consulting. So you don't necessarily bring your pet in to see them, but you can contact them for assistance or homemade diet formulation or things like that. But there are not not too many out in uh, clinical practice. Hopefully that will change as uh, people recognize the importance and clients just want to talk about this stuff. So hopefully we'll see more. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. So to get into the the topic for today, we're actually going to touch on a lot of topics and I, we could probably talk for hours about what we want to oh, talk yeah. about today. Um, but I, so going back to why I wanted to do this episode about some of the nutritional um, facts and myths and things that we want to be looking forward to as we get out into practice is because like you said, Mizzou is unique uh and fortunate to have a nutrition service, uh, and nutrition is one of our electives in our clinical rotations. I took that rotation a few months ago, absolutely loved it, um, and really found that there's a ton of value in learning more and becoming really good at uh, at nutrition uh, in private practice, specifically for for small animals. So um, there's some things I wanted to ask you about. Okay, and I'll put a little disclaimer that. Um, and we'll probably touch back on this a lot throughout this conversation, but everyone that's listening, everyone that's out there needs to form their own opinion about some of these controversial topics in nutrition. And I know that you're thinking about some right now if you're listening. Um, so what we're going to talk about today are really the facts about some of these topics and try to be as absolute and as fact-based as, as possible, because as you know, there's there's a lot of emotion that can go into this and a lot of... Um, controversy people get into really heated discussions which sometimes is not necessary we just need to know the facts and and see what um see what we know medically about some of these these fads and um and diets and and ways that we approach clinical nutrition sound good that sounds great all right so the first thing that i wanted to ask you about is one topic that i'm still trying to grasp my mind around and that is raw diets Yes. Um, so we spent a lot of time talking about this on the on the nutrition rotation. I've done a lot of reading uh, online, and I wanted to see what you have to say about what studies have shown and, and what you know of in the real world of what the pros and cons are of feeding raw diets to, to dogs. Sure, yeah. So um, raw food feeding has become popular and I think is going to continue to gain more and more popularity. Unfortunately, the health claims that most of the proponents of raw food feeding make are not backed by science. Okay. So there are some studies out there on digestibility, mm-hmm. and that is 
really the only place that we see a benefit to feeding a raw meat product is okay. it's slightly more digestible than a cooked product. And in general, meat products would be more digestible than your canned or dry commercial right. products. Um, so that's a pretty general statement. The difference in digestibility between a raw and a cooked meat product um, or ingredient is really negligible and probably okay. not clinically relevant to most patients. So if you cook that meat, it doesn't really take away much of the digestibility. Gotcha. Um, besides that, there are no health benefits that have been supported by any sort of science. Okay. Um, there are a lot of health claims that get made online. And, yeah, so that's uh, why, why did this become a thing in the first yeah, place? Yeah, so I think part of it is that um, owners and uh, people who support raw feeding think that this is a much more natural diet for mm -hmm. dogs and cats. Dogs in the in the wild or cats in the wild don't have anybody cooking their meat and certainly right. don't have anyone popping open a can or a, opening a bag of dry food. Um, so there's an argument that it's maybe the more evolutionary diet. Um, However, dogs and cats are not, we talk about this on the rotation a lot, right? Dogs and cats are not wild animals right. and domestic dogs are not wolves. Uh, domestic cats are not tigers or, or wild Cheetism. cats. Yeah. So their diets and their digestive systems have evolved and mm -hmm. they can most certainly digest a commercial diet um, more than maybe a, a wolf or a wild animal right. could. So that's one argument is that it's the more natural diet. Um, and then there are a lot of really unsupported health claims out there. I mean, it, it tends to be the cure-all. cures cancer, it cures right. diabetes, it cures everything. Um, and there may be certain features of a raw diet that are beneficial to patients with medical conditions. Mm -hmm. So maybe, for example, a, a diabetic patient, a raw diet might be lower in carbohydrate, more sure. meat product. So maybe that's where the benefit is coming from. But the actual fact that the diet is raw is probably not what's lending any benefit to that right. patient. So, um, yeah, that's, I mean, unfortunately, we just don't have any evidence to say that it's beneficial. We do have quite a lot of studies to show that it may be harmful, though. Okay. And the two things we worry about are nutritional adequacy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these raw diets, particularly if they're prepared at home by an owner, are not complete and balanced, and they're not going to provide a pet with all the essential nutrients that they need for health. That's very concerning to us as nutritionists. Probably more concerning to our public health veterinary friends right, and right. all of us as veterinarians or our public health advocates as well is the risk to feeding a raw meat product in a, in a household where that bacterial contamination could make both animals and people sick. Sure. So that's the... The biggest concern I have when I when I talk to owners um, is to make them aware that there is a, a risk to doing that. The FDA, the CDC, the AVMA all have position statements on raw food feeding and, and advocate against it uh, for exactly that reason, for the right. risk to okay. the people and the pets in the household. Public health. Yeah. And pets, too. I mean, our, our patients can get sick from sure. eating raw food. Um, that's one of the kind of myths that are out there is, well, maybe people can get sick, but my dog or cat won't. It's its digestive tract can kill this bacteria. It's not going to get sick. And I can guarantee you I've seen plenty of patients in the hospital, dogs and cats with salmonellosis mm -hmm. or severe diarrhea from E. coli. And um, most certainly our pets can get sick from sure. eating raw food. Gotcha. So if you have a client out in private practice that is 100% adamant, they are not going to budge off going, uh, going off of a raw meat diet and just kind of have to deal with it. What What is your recommendation on how to approach that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I certainly dealt with that in practice. Um, there are some very passionate people out there and they're going to continue doing what they're doing. And if you're not willing to at least work with them, they're probably going to go elsewhere. Right. Um, and 
maybe in your practice, that's the policy is yes, you should go elsewhere if right. you're choosing to do this. But uh, if you are going to continue working with those clients, I think the most important thing is to make sure that they're at least educated on the facts, like any sort of medical procedure, even if they're going to decline a surgery, for example, they right. should at least know why you're recommending it and what the benefits are and the risks if they don't proceed with that. Gotcha. Still their pet, they can still choose to feed it any way they'd like, but they should know that the risks to their pet and um, to the family members in, in the household are significant. Right. Um, I think printing out a handout, and there are plenty of them, again, on the FDA, CDC websites, mm -hmm. AVMA, um, and sending that home with the client is important. And then the most important part of doing that for, for us is to document it in the medical record, right. Right. that you've shared that information with the client, that you have let them know the pros and cons of doing that. If, if you do support raw feeding, that's fine, but at least that you've discussed the potential risks and that how these owners should go about hygiene and, right. and cleaning bowls and things like that. And if they still choose to do it, at least in the medical record, if somebody gets sick or if a pet gets right. sick, it's documented that you had that conversation. Sure. And we are starting to see people get sick and even die from coming into oh, contact wow. with raw food, raw pet food. Okay. Um, so I think that's unfortunately going to become more common. And this I'm, could be a life or death situation. Yeah, a life or death situation, which we all need to sleep at night, but um, we also don't want to get sued for a human right. illness or death. Right. And uh, I think that's that's a real risk to doing this. There, there have been some very recent publications in the past year of humans getting very sick and even dying from salmonellosis, mostly, or E. coli, um, shikotoxin-producing E. coli. Uh -huh. And uh, that's that's pretty scary stuff. So yeah. if owners want to do it and are prepared to handle the cleanup and the you know precautions that they need to to handle, that's ultimately their decision. I think in the veterinary setting, we have a, a some options on how we're going to handle those pets. Though, um, when I was in practice, I would wear gloves mm -hmm. when examining pets who were eating raw food uh, yeah. to protect myself and, right. and my staff and house those pets when boarding in a separate area. So right. they could not, you know, pass that bacteria on to pets that maybe were more immunocompromised. Right. So I think it's important to have a policy in place in every hospital about how you handle patients that come in eating raw food because they are shedding bacteria. Sure. sure. Cool. That is that's great information about about raw. So, similar to that, let's talk about homemade diets because I think that, at least from what I've learned in my very brief time and in, in really getting focused on nutrition, is that people that that do raw, oftentimes like to make their own homemade diets. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are obviously a few commercial um, or several commercial uh, raw food, yep. dog food companies. Um, but a lot of people will also make their their food at home. And I know that our biggest concern, like you mentioned earlier, is making sure it is complete and balanced. So raw or not, um, how what is your recommendation how to approach people that want to do homemade diets for their dogs and cats for that matter? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the thing to keep in mind with people who want to home cook or maybe need to because there are some medical conditions that there's just no commercial diet that exists. Right. So right. maybe they need to home cook for their pet. Um, and I think the important thing to remember is these are your most passionate clients. Sure. Somebody willing to take the time and the money to cook for their dog, I quite frankly could not do it and it's would no not joke. do it. It's no. Serious. And and so I think if you remind yourself of that first, that these are people who really care and potentially are going to be some of your best clients across the board, whether it's that you're recommending uh, blood work, annual blood work, or a dental cleaning. I mean, these are people who really, really care. So um, I think it is worth taking the time to, mm -hmm. to really um, find out why owners are choosing to do this. 
Um, there are a lot of reasons owners want to cook for their pets. Sometimes it's a very emotional thing. Right. Um, we cook for our loved ones. A lot right. of a lot of cultures do that. Our society certainly does that. And pets have really taken the place of children for some people. Sure. Um, so some people just like to cook for their dogs and and get joy out of doing that. Others um, feel that it's a cheaper option. Generally, I will say it is not. Right. Um, there are certain circumstances where it may be, but it may be that they perceive it to be lower cost than the therapeutic diet that their right. veterinarian is recommending. Um, so there are a lot of different reasons behind why owners choose to home cook. And I think that's the first thing to find out is, why are you doing this? And right. and is there a way that we can maybe work together to do this safely if you want to continue doing it? Or can I offer you a suggestion for a diff- diet that would be appropriate for your needs or your, you know, reasons for cooking that would be safer to do. Right. Um, because there is, just as you said, that that risk when you're preparing your own diet, that it's not going to meet the nutritional needs of that particular pet. And it's, you know, a lot of a lot of work, it's a lot of time, it's a lot of money, but there's also a lot of risk for variability in ingredients right. and things like that. So even if they have a great recipe, which unfortunately most owners don't, <laughs> uh, then there's still the risk that they can kind of mess it up. Right. And we provide our diets to dogs and cats. It's their sole source of nutrition. So right. we really need to make sure we're providing them with a complete right. and balanced diet. Right. Even more reason to, if, if they would like to do a homemade diet, to talk to a nutritionist, get a consultation and, and yeah. do it the right way. I mean, so there's nothing wrong, in my opinion, with a homemade diet as long as it's safe, balanced, and, and good for the pet. Completely agree. And, and there are really, I can't think of any times where I've told somebody, you cannot do this. Um, with, you know, the exception that it's completely inappropriate for the medical condition. So, you know, a really high fat diet in a patient with pancreatitis, you can't do this because it's medically contraindicated. Um, But other than that, I think these are owners that if you're willing to work with them, they're are a variety of resources out there for general practitioners or people that are passionate about nutrition. You don't have to be a nutritionist to help owners come up with a complete and balanced homemade diet. You do have to have some understanding. So, um, you know, Seth, you would be able to work with an owner who wants to do a homemade diet after going through our clinical nutrition rotation and learning what resources are out there for you Um, or any veterinarian in practice who wants to maybe take a couple CE courses about homemade diets. Um, So it's something that you can work with owners, if it's a complex medical case, um, or sometimes a complex owner, it is worth referring to a nutritionist. And uh, the ACVN, the American College of Veterinary Nutrition, has boarded veterinary nutritionists. Our diplomats are listed on our website. Mm -hmm. You can just go there, click on the list of diplomats, find somebody in your area or somebody who takes consultations via email or phone and and refer your clients there. So there's lots and lots of options if owners want to do that on how to do it safely. Unfortunately, the recipes available to owners that they usually stumble across online or in books are not complete and balanced. Um, And there are ways as a veterinarian, you can kind of look at those recipes and raise your eyebrows and say, I don't I don't think that this is going to meet all of the needs for for your dog or your cat. Um, Really, the best way to do it is to have an individualized recipe made for that patient. Mm -hmm. And that's either with the help of their veterinarian or with the help of a veterinary nutritionist. Cool. Great. That is awesome. Next topic. Uh, this is a big one. This is a, uh, a fun one. It's been in the news a lot, so I hope you're ready. Grain-free. Oh, boy. So we don't have to get into the whole um, heart disease thing. We can touch on it, but I, I, if, if you've been living anywhere near the veterinary community, you've probably heard about that with grain-free um, and novel protein diets. But let's just talk about from a 30,000-foot uh, a view, 
Um, pros and cons of grain-free. Why our owners would want to do a grain-free? Is it indicated? When would it be indicated or contraindicated? What do we need to know about grain-free? Yeah, so I think I think the biggest thing to recognize about grain-free is there is really no reason that a dog or cat can't have grains in a general sense. There may be a particular patient that has a you know food allergy to one specific type of grain and needs to avoid that. That's extremely rare. Right. Um, if dogs and cats are going to have food allergies, it's generally to a protein source. But we've encountered those in, in our service where it's a patient that we think might be allergic to corn or wheat mm-hmm. or something like that. So it, that's possible. In that case, they're not allergic to all grains. Right. So it's if you're you know allergic to peanuts, you're not necessarily allergic to all nuts. So right. it, it's it's similar to that. Um, so those patients may need to avoid certain grains. Um, but other than that, there's really no medical reason to avoid grains. Um, grains can provide a really highly digestible source of a lot of nutrients, but even protein. And it really comes down to the type of grain and how it's processed and manufactured and the company reputation on, on who's making that food, but I never hesitate to use diets with grains okay. in them. Um, mostly that was a marketing thing. <laughs> so say, let me put on my uninformed owner hat. Well, grains are bad for people. I've read that on the internet. Yeah. Of course they're bad for animals. Yeah. And I, I used to hear in practice all the time, have you ever seen corn? Have you ever eaten corn? It comes out the other end looking like corn. And right. That's not what we're feeding our pets in, in pet food. Um, and a lot of people think of it as a filler mm-hmm. or that it provides no nutritional value. And again, it comes down to, I think, company reputation. But yep. if you're feeding a high quality dog food, the grains in there are not in there to fill anything. They're in there to provide a complementary profile to the, the nutrient profile sure. that's in the meat and the fat. Sure. So that's, that's, there's just not accurate, I guess, is what I can say. Um, when you put no blank on anything, it starts to look good. Right, so right. Um, it really did kind of come about more as a, a marketing thing. And now the market is pretty flooded with grain-free right. diets. And Props to them. It, it, it worked. It did um, work. So. It did work. Um, <laughs> and lesson in marketing. Yeah. And owners are willing to pay a lot more for a grain-free diet when there's, again, really no scientific evidence behind feeding that and, and that being a superior diet choice. So sometimes it's as simple as informing an owner that, right. you know, you don't have to feed a grain-free diet. And it's almost a relief for some owners because if they watch all the TV commercials, they really do think that that's what they have to do right. um, to provide the best nutrition for their pet. Right. So there's really no no benefit for the majority of animals to eating a grain-free diet. Most animals can digest grains just fine and get a really good quality nutrition from a, a diet that has grains in it. Right. And I think you make a good, really good point, too, that that dogs may be allergic to some grains. I think oftentimes veterinarians, vet students, anyone in the, in the veterinary community gets on to like this one extreme side that, no, grains are not the issue. It's the protein that they're allergic to. There's no way that they're allergic to grains. But it's no, possible. They, they can be. Yeah, um, it's possible. And I think that one of the biggest things that I've learned and, and what I'm become pretty passionate about, especially because I want to go into general practice, but I've seen this across most of the specialty services um, at our hospital and also on externships is that allergies in dogs are such a common thing. Like, I don't know, I don't know what the statistic is, but the majority of dogs are probably going to have an allergy at some point in their life. Um, so it would behoove you to become knowledgeable in what they could be allergic to and how to go about narrowing down what it's going to be. Yes, is it probably the protein if it's a dietary allergy? Yeah, probably. But we need to be doing our due diligence to figure out 
what else it could be. It could be the grain. It, it could not even be the food anyway. So um, I encourage you, if, if you're in vet school now or even if you're out in practice, um, to, to kind of take a look at that because we could help so many more dogs and cats for that matter if we just know what to look for um, and know what not to look for too. And that's such a great point because so many owners will come in and say, I switched to this grain-free food and my dog is doing fantastic. Right. And I think sometimes if, if we're informed veterinarians and we know that grains are not common sources of allergens, our reaction to that is, okay, yeah, right. It, right. it wasn't the diet. But maybe it was the diet. It may not be the grains right. not being in the diet, but ultimately that owner's happy that that, that dog is not itching as much. Right. So we have to respect that and say, okay, great. What could it be in this diet that is benefiting your dog? And often when owners make a switch to a grain-free diet, whether that's directed by a veterinarian or not, they're not just switching to a diet without grains. They're changing everything else about that diet. So they're usually changing the protein source as well, the fat source, and there's all sorts of other things in that diet. So if you're feeding a chicken and rice diet and then you go to a grain-free, you know, venison and potato diet, you've not only changed the the rice to a potato source, but you've changed that protein source as well. And maybe there are some additional fatty acids in that new diet, that grain-free diet, some more fat in general that's helping improve skin and coat health. Maybe this isn't an allergy issue at all. Maybe it's just a better diet for this patient. So it it definitely is worth um, considering, but grain-free diets are not necessarily indicated for any patient with allergies. And it would not be my recommendation if you're, you're... suspicious of a food allergy to go to an over-the-counter grain-free diet. There are diets specifically indicated for that therapeutic purpose. Now, let's say that in that scenario you just gave that you've got an itchy dog, they change the diet to a grain-free and it's it's better. Would there be reason to take them off the grain-free? Oh boy. Uh, if you had asked me, (laughs) if you had asked me a year and a half ago, um, I would have said no. And that's what I told people in practice is, okay, your dog's doing great on it. You should know that there's, it's very unlikely that it's the grain-free aspect of this diet that's benefiting your dog. But hey, if it's doing well and stools are normal and skin and coat is normal and your dog has good activity and it's in good body condition, all those other assessments that we make on whether a a pet is doing well on a food, Mm -hmm. if all of that's good, then I'm happy. Stay with that food. Now we have to approach that a little differently, I guess, because of the recent DCM link to grain-free and other types of diets. Um, So Dr. Lisa Freeman at Tufts kind of coined the term BEG diets, boutique, exotic, uh, and grain-free diets. And those are the ones where we're seeing an association between the development of dilated cardiomyopathy or heart disease in dogs, um, and it's eating those diets. So it's not just grain-free. We won't vilify grain-free here, but that is uh, one of the categories of diets that's been implicated. Right. Um, so as you mentioned, it's you have to be living in a hole right. in the veterinary right. community to not have heard about this. Uh, and there's more and more literature coming out every month as, as papers are being published. We still don't know what it is about these diets right. that's, that's, a, that's causing it. So we don't know that it's the grain-free aspect. Um, We don't know that it's the protein source. It may be a combination of a lot of things. But what we do know is this association is there, and the FDA is looking into it. So like anything, you just want to educate clients that your dog's doing great on this diet. I'm so happy. You should be aware, though, that the FDA is investigating a link between certain diets like grain-free diets and the development of heart disease and then offer owners the appropriate options from there if it's a breed that's at risk maybe it's 
referral to a cardiologist for an echocardiogram. If right. it's not, maybe it's just checking taurine levels. These diets right. have sometimes been associated with low taurine status. Right. So um, make the appropriate recommendations from there. But we can't necessarily say, oh, well, if everything's going well, just keep doing what you're doing, right. at least at this stage. Hopefully right. we'll know more soon and we'll be able to say, well, this particular grain-free diet you're feeding should be fine. Right. But right now, we just have to be cautious. Right. Gotcha. All right, so after the break, we're going to talk about a couple more topics, really good ones. Um, the next one is a big problem that we're seeing in both humans and animals, and that's obesity. So stay tuned. Uh, after the break, we're going to get into that. But first, give me a chance to give a big thanks to today's sponsor, AVMA PLIT. So let me tell you a little bit about AVMA PLIT. If you've listened to episode 27 of the podcast, you know the importance of organized veterinary medicine and PLIT is a huge part of that. They are part of the AVMA family and they protect veterinarians throughout their careers, starting in veterinary school. In addition to providing free, yes, free malpractice coverage for veterinary students, PLIT supports students and schools through sponsorships. They sponsor organizations like VBMA, VLE, and SAVMA, many others. So watch your email throughout the school year for email announcements from PLIT student ambassadors and visit avmaplit.com slash unleashed to see when PLIT's trust veterinarians are visiting your school. Luckily, I have not had the opportunity to use my PLIT liability insurance while I've been in school, and I hope I never have to, even when I'm out of school. But PLIT is a great company and organization to work with. They really care about students, and they have our back in everything that we do, not only in the classroom and not only in our clinical rotations, but out on externships as well. They really care about vet students. AVMA PLIT is always looking for new ways to support the future of veterinary medicine, the profession, and students like us. If you haven't already enrolled, you need to do it now. It is free. So visit avmaplit.com unleashed. Sign up for free and get enrolled today. All right, so obesity. Uh, I was... Online yesterday, and yet another article from one of the journals came out that obesity is still on the rise in our companion animals. So, uh, again, I know that we could get deep into the weeds on this one, but what's your two cents on how to combat this issue? What's why are we seeing such a a problem with obesity in animals, and and how can vets um, combat the combat the problem? Yeah, it's well, it's a huge problem, and I. I think the first big thing is being able to recognize it, both on the veterinary side and the owner side. So um, in veterinary school, getting a good handle on body condition scoring mm-hmm. is really important so that you can accurately assess an animal as overweight right. or over, or, or obese. Um, sometimes animals come in and I look at the records and it said this patient's been ideal weight and I look at it and say oh no no no, it has not (laughs) and you know that could be a veterinarian who just maybe doesn't recognize an obese animal because Mm -hmm. we see so many of them every day it's like the new normal it is or there's there's some difficulty in having that conversation with owners and saying hey you know your your pet's overweight he's gained some weight recently are you aware of this it's it's an awkward conversation to have and it does take some practice to do uh in a way that's not offensive. Sure. Um, and some owners will take offense no matter what. Right. Uh, they don't want to hear that about their pets. So whatever the reason, recognizing it and making sure the owner recognizes it is really important. And owners can be taught to understand body condition scoring and even do it themselves. They're not as good as veterinarians, but there is a validated body condition scoring right. system out there. 
So I think that's the first step. Um, And then it's trying to identify why. And certainly there are medical conditions that may predispose a patient to obesity. Maybe it's arthritis. They're just not getting up and moving and, and... Maybe it's an overindulgence in treats and human right. foods and table scraps. Um, a lot of the commercial diets that are available, if you if you do have a patient that's just eating their regular diet and not getting a lot of treats, a lot of the diets that we've created for dogs are highly palatable right. um, and really energy dense. So if we're not measuring out the food and animals that are free fed, it's it can be a real problem for them. Um, so we're providing them with this really great food. We like adding stuff to it. We right. like... Um, increasing treats and and celebrating things with our pets. And so there's lots and lots of reasons why a patient may be obese. So the most important thing is just to recognize that it's there. And then you can start to address the problem because obesity is really one of the few medical conditions that we can cure. I mean, we can treat that and be really successful and owners have to be on board and the veterinary staff has to be on board, but it can be a really rewarding thing to do. Right, Right. cool, that's great. Yeah, I, I think there's a ton of potential um, with that and, and with having a nutrition background and using nutritionists like yourself to, to help us with that, I think we could, we could make so many lives better, both for animals and, and their owners. Yeah, and we know, and, and a, another study just came out, that pets that are in an ideal body condition live longer yeah. and they have a better quality of life. So right. as veterinarians, it's our responsibility, if we can offer a really oftentimes free or even money saving if they're overfeeding. Right, right. Uh, if we can offer clients with a, a way to get their pets to live longer, healthier lives, that's that's why we're all in this. Right, right. So it's, it's something that we can certainly do. Um, nutritionists are out there to help. There's also some great AHA guidelines that have been written. So this is definitely something that you can do in practice. It takes a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're willing to put the time in and I think this is a great opportunity for a separate appointment to come right, back and discuss right. body weight and a weight loss plan because it does does take a little effort on the part of the veterinary staff to implement a successful weight loss plan. Mm-hmm. It takes owners who are compliant right. and willing to come back in for rechecks. But I think it's probably some of the the most rewarding cases I've worked on are mm-hmm. weight loss plans where the owner says, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I couldn't do it. I couldn't get the weight off. And once we develop a, a plan and that owner is willing to stick to it, we see the pounds come off and then you see pets that move more comfortably and are happier. Right. And you right. get that report that he's acting like a puppy again. And we've been able to discontinue the NSAIDs and we're just so happy. Right. And it's, right. it's just a very, very rewarding thing. So um, it's something you will see every single day, if not every appointment in general practice. Um, And it is so, so important to recognize and then be willing to work with an owner on a plan. And there are so many resources out there on on how to develop a weight loss plan. Um, And frankly, I think it's something that can be profitable to a veterinary clinic. It's it's knowledge and time that you can charge for. Sure. Um, and owners are willing to pay for it. They If they recognize the problem and they understand that they might get two more years with their pet if they could get some weight off, right. I mean, that's most owners are willing to do it if they're given guidance to do right. it. Right, totally. And, and I really like your point about seeing having owners see the change in their pets once they drop the weight and they feel so much better. There, there are two areas of, of companion animal medicine that I've found have been the most impactful for, for owners in my short time in this career. Uh, and one is dentistry, because people think that, oh, the dog's teeth are fine, don't worry about it. And then you clean the teeth or you pull a few of the bad teeth, and it's a new dog the next day. So that's number one. Number two is, like you said, obesity, uh, or just weight loss in general. Yeah. And, and that can make such a difference. So um, great point. All right, so my last question for you, um, 
which doesn't have to be super in depth, but but definitely something that I think we should be thinking about as we exit vet school, uh, and even if we're we're a, a veteran in in practice, is there are so many food companies out there to choose from, dogs and cats uh, specifically. Um, how do you go about evaluating a pet food company? What are your recommendations for us on choosing a company to stand by? And I would say endorse, but not like financially endorse, but just mm-hmm. one that we would recommend um, to our clients. What, what goes into that thought process? Yeah, that's that's such an important thing to think about because I think most veterinary students leave school and they're taught that Hills Purina and Royal Canin, right. not to name names here, but Hills Purina and Royal Canin are the diets to feed and everything else is is scary. Don't right. even think about it. Don't even look into it. Just recommend that to the clients. And clients are not stupid. They're on to this. Right. Um, when they ask for a diet recommendation and a veterinarian spits out, well, Hills Purina or Royal Canin, right. they automatically think, wow, they must have paid for your vet school, which right. would have been very nice yeah, if please, anybody God. out there yeah. is, wants to pay for my, my vet school loans, I'd be happy to take it. But, um, you know, it, there's there's not a lot of other exposure to us in veterinary school, to be quite honest, to some of the other companies. Um, so it is worth investigating what's out there. It is impossible as any veterinarian and even as a nutritionist to keep up on the number of diets that are available right, to consumers. Right. It's impossible. There are new ones coming out every single day. Um, but there are some ways to look at a diet if an owner brings you something and say, ooh, I would not or I would recommend right. you continue feeding this. I think, as you said, the best thing is to come up with some diets that you're comfortable with and you're familiar with that you can recommend and specific diets, not just Hills Purina or Royal Cannon, right. but maybe a specific version of each one of those diets for your puppies and maybe your seniors and mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and kind of deciding what food you're going to recommend, there should be some thought process that goes into it. The guidelines I use are very similar to what Wasava, the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, mm-hmm. has published. And I think that any listeners should go there and check that out. They have kind of a checklist, which I also think is great to give to clients right. on how to evaluate a pet food company. Mm-hmm. So this is not a particular food. It's not, you know, Purina dog chow. It's the company as a whole. And so things that I look for and I take very seriously, you know, include, is this a company that employs veterinarians and veterinary nutritionists would be ideal. Right. So um, is, is it a company that does research? When we're talking about nutrition research, it's not invasive, you know, animal research where we have to be worried about things. It's making sure that the diets can be fed to dogs and that they do okay with right. it. Um, and also, if they can contribute to the body of scientific literature out there, even better. Right. So, you know, I like to see companies that are doing research on their diets and feeding it to pets before it gets put on the shelf and then publishing that research so that we can all in the veterinary community benefit from mm-hmm. the information that they've gathered. Um, so those are important things to me. Manufacturing practices are also really important, and any company, if you call them, should be able to tell you about their quality control and their safety and their testing and how they formulate their diets. Do they have a formulator on staff? Is it a veterinary nutritionist? If it's not, is it a PhD nutritionist or an animal nutritionist? Who's making these diets? Um, So that information should be readily available. 
And where do they get their ingredients? How do they source their ingredients? Right. So, of course, there's plenty of stuff that you'll call a company and ask them, and they'll say, well, that's proprietary, and we can't right. share that information right. with you. But I will tell you that a lot of the companies that I recommend will readily share that information with you and give you their full nutrient profiles of right. the diets that they're feeding and give you the research behind why they think it's a good diet. Right. So that information should you know, be transparent. The public should be able to call and get that exact same information as well. Right. So I think that Wasava checklist is really great because it has some of those types of questions that an owner could literally you know, call up a pet food company and ask them these questions. And we've had students do this as an activity on the rotation right. and, and call some you know, different pet food companies and you'll get a variety of responses. Right. Sometimes you won't get anybody on the phone and sometimes you'll get really great, well thought out answers to questions about quality control mm -hmm. and nutritional adequacy and, and you know, contributing to the literature and people who are on staff and helping to, to make these diets because that is really important. Company, company reputation is important. And I think we've kind of, as a society, a lot of owners and, and veterinarians as well are starting to become wary of big companies. Right. And we have this fear that, you know, big companies are just in it for the money and we should go with our small companies. Um, but I'll be very honest. I think all of us as nutritionists have a lot more faith in the big companies that can afford the quality control, the research and the staffing of, of qualified individuals, right. veterinary nutritionists, right. if, if possible, um, to create a diet that's really exceptional. Right. Um, and if they happen to also have some veterinary options, it just, you know, lends itself even better to incorporating into your totally. practice recommendations. Cool. That's great. So my last, last question for you, and I think this is a really important one, if not the most important one of the day, and we're going to kind of bring this back full circle. Uh, I think it's really important that we start to expose more veterinary students and pre-vet students and even veterinarians about the importance of nutrition. Yes, you're preaching to the choir here. Yeah. So tell us how and even why uh, vet students that are considering uh, internship and residency or, or going for a specialty route, uh, or like in your case, that are out in practice that want to want to change in pace and want to specialize in something, how to go about looking into a nutritional uh, clinical residency, becoming a nutritionist, uh, and all that. Yeah, I and I think the the thing that's so cool about nutrition is you can you can be very knowledgeable and very involved in nutrition even without pursuing that degree of training. Mm -hmm. I. I'm so happy I'm where I'm at and that I'm doing a residency, but um, there were so many opportunities available to me in practice as far as CE and veterinary organizations where I didn't have to be a specialist. So that's the first thing I'd say is if there are veterinary students who are interested in nutrition um, or veterinarians out there who are interested mm -hmm. in nutrition, there are so many ways to learn more and um, make it a profitable part of your practice without right. just selling pet food right. um, and incorporate it into your your daily exams. Right. So if you're like me, though, and you want to really hone in on this nutrition thing and, right. and pursue that training, um, there are some programs across the country and, uh, you know, across the world. They're very limited. Right. Um, but I will tell you that people who train others in nutrition and study nutrition love talking about it. So these are very easily accessible individuals at conferences. Um, if you meet anybody who's lecturing on nutrition um, or anyone in industry, all you have to do is say that you're you know, interested. And I think that's the best way to put your foot in the door. Right. Um, if you're at a veterinary school that doesn't offer a clinical nutrition training program, there are plenty that will take you right. on an right. externship or something like that. And then you can get to know some of those individuals. But Ultimately, I think the 
best thing I did to prepare for my nutrition residency was be out there and talking to clients about nutrition um, and realize the void that needs to be filled and how much I enjoyed talking about it because so much of, of nutrition is communication. Sure. So um, I think an internship can prepare you as well if you're in an internship where you're given some latitude to talk to clients about nutrition. Right, right. Um, But uh, you can certainly do externships with people who practice clinical nutrition. You can go to universities where they have a clinical nutrition rotation. If you're a veterinary student and you're interested in nutrition at Mizzou or uh, where somewhere that has a similar program, you take that rotation. Um, If nothing else, if you find you're not super passionate about it, like, us nutrition nerds, that's fine because you're going to use it every day in practice right. or in your specialty anyway. Um, we have quite a few nutrition folks that are double boarded in medicine oh, wow. or oncology. And, you know, there are not many nutritionists out there, but some of them are double boarded. So it's also something you can incorporate into another specialty, mm-hmm. especially because our training program is rather short compared right. to some of right. the others. Um, so, you know, I, like I said, I, I didn't do an internship. I didn't think I ever wanted to do any more training after veterinary school, right. I was done. Right. <laughs> if you had told me I'd be here, you know, five years ago, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, so that is one of the nice things too, is it's never too late. And I know everybody says that about their residency programs, but I think when it comes to nutrition, it really is never too late because you don't have to go back and do an intensive, you know, rotating small animal internship. You can be in practice and, and that is more than qualifies you to right. apply to a, a residency program. So you need at least a year, either as as an intern or uh, in practice somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then, like any other program, you know, we're in the match. So you apply similar to how you would for other residencies. But I found it to be an incredibly rewarding residency experience, um, and and um, something that I'm really glad I pursued, and that I'm just happy it really isn't too late. I didn't have to go back right. and do an internship. Right. I, I went right back to, to school and I'm going to be right back out soon. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's really cool that, that you can make that change and it's not, it's not such a huge like train stopper. It's, it's, yeah. it's okay. It's a little bit of a, a pay cut, yep, yep. A <laughs> but <bit>. yeah, <laughs> a, little, a little bit, um, but just short term. Um, so you don't have to have known uh, right away that this is, you know, your path. I think that's the beauty of nutrition is once you start talking to people and you realize how passionate clients are, it, it makes you passionate, at least for some of us, I think right. it does. And, and you know, I, I took nutrition when I was in veterinary school and it was, it was a great course, but I was not going to specialize in right. nutrition. Right. Um, I never would have thought that would happen. So um, it is something that I had to get out there and kind of get my hands dirty a little bit and I still don't know that I know what I love and I don't love about veterinary medicine. It's the beauty of it, right? right? right. But um, but I had the option to kind of figure it out my first few years and still go back and, and do some specialty cool. training. So. Cool. Well, that is, that's great insight and I think a great way to end the conversation. All right. Cool. All right. Well, one more time. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ruggiero, for coming on the podcast, lending us your expertise and and again, I'm really thankful that you were able to come on and, and share some of your insight about these, some of these tough topics of nutrition, why it's so important. Um, and I'm really excited for you. You're almost done. I'm almost done. Um, <laughs> Let's get so, out of here. <laughs> yeah, um, and, uh, and for those of you that are listening, I think Dr. Ruggiero made the point very clear that nutrition is important. If you're interested, there are definite ways to learn more about it, become boarded if you want to. Um, 
it is just a really big part of small animal practice nowadays. And I think, and uh, I hope that we kind of made that a little more clear today that it's, uh, it's important that we learn a little bit more about nutrition. So um, thank you again one more time. This was awesome. Um, and yeah, till next time. Thank you so much, Seth.